So basically, I started out in rehabilitation research and um, have taught at the University of Oregon in Eugene for mm-hmm. most of my career and just retired recently from there. And I, my background then was as a materialist scientist, I've trained in um, graduate school at the University of Southern California, got my PhD there, that, um, as you say, neurons are producing consciousness that's it that's it and so when the neurons basically are diseased or they die consciousness um either is terribly impaired or it goes away completely and um i thought that anybody that didn't believe that was weak-minded because all of my graduate courses in neuroscience um, told me that i mean that was our absolute theory it's what i would call the dogma of being a neuroscientist and so I accepted that and I still remember going to family gatherings um, once every few years where some of my family members would be spiritually oriented and I would talk with my uncle who was also a materialist and a scientist and we would talk about those weak-minded people over there yes, that didn't yeah. really you know, understand. <laughs> hmm. So it was amazing to me then after being in rehabilitation research and I've, you know, I've published a textbook that's in its fifth edition now and I have 200 plus articles um, in that area, many, many grants in that area, I then had this experience at a meditation retreat, which turned around my own experience of consciousness and therefore made me begin to question the very premises that I had had as my way of seeing the world for most of my life. Hmm. So what was that experience you had? Could you describe it? Sure, I mean, so I'll even take you back a few, moments before the um, experience, because what happened is that my sister who had been meditating for a few years and lived in Hawaii, um, had told me that she had met an an Indian master of meditation. And she told me that it was um, a wonderful experience for her to start meditating. And she thought that I might like it. And she even offered to give me a meditation retreat for a birthday present. And uh, I was teaching at a university in Virginia at the time. And um, I was skeptical, but I was also a bit curious to see um, what she was talking about. And I should say part of the reason that I was curious is because she and I had come down to Arizona the previous Christmas time to visit our parents who lived in Arizona. And at that time there had been a very, um, what do I call it? Sort of a a dramatic plane crash over Southern California that we um, saw the news about. And I was having to fly down from Oregon Mm. and to go up to and, and and fly back. And so when this happened while we were down here, I realized I was gonna have to get on a plane to go back to Oregon. And I was very frightened of plane flying at that time, especially after that news. And so um, she was walking me down the ramp to the plane because back in those days, we had that ability to um, be with the person like up to the point they got on the plane. And she said, when she saw how um, unsettled I was about getting on the plane after that accident, she said, well, I have something that I can offer you. And I said, well, what? And she gave me actually a mantra. And I didn't know what a mantra was, but she said, just repeat these words. And the words happened to be soham, um, which literally translate in English into I am that pure awareness. I didn't know mm-hmm. what the meaning was, but I just said, okay, I took it because I was in a certain sense desperate to get away from my fear of my anxiety. And so I started repeating it as I got into my seat on the airplane. And I remember that my experience of flying was totally different than it had been before. It's like, I'm usually like white knuckled at takeoff during a so flight. And, and yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. And and this time it was like, I was fine and I could look down then on the clouds that were floating by like underneath the plane the rest of the trip and think, this is really beautiful flying mm-hmm. in the air. And it was like, wow, how could that one thing that I was doing actually changed this whole experience. So it gave me like a little bit of an opening and curiosity when she then said, you know, why don't I give you for a birthday present this intensive meditation program? So basically what happened is that I, she reminds me, first of all, that I said yes to that. And then I said, no, because my boyfriend said, look, she's, she's just a bubblehead. She's just, you know, one of these, you know, hippies. But then I, I nevertheless said again, yes, I will go. And so then what happened is in the very first meditation session, what we were told is that the Swami, and in fact, his name was Swami Muktananda. They said, Swami will be coming around and initiating everyone in the room. And this initiation is actually called Shaktipat, which means the awakening of this energy that's inside of us that's usually dormant. And that's what you will then be experiencing. And so I was 
curious, but I was also skeptical. I am a neuroscientist and I was a materialist, but I thought, look, I'm here for the weekend. I may as well just be open and see what the experience is like. And then what happened to me is that as he came around, as he walked around the room, he basically um, took his, his fingers like on the bridge of my nose and right at the base of my forehead and touched me there. And what I felt when he did that was a feeling like a current of energy go from his fingers down into my skin and then down deep into my body, right to the center of my heart. It felt almost like a mini lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. And then I began feeling energy like flowing outward. This feeling of energy would be like an experience of like nectar, like love pouring through me. And interestingly, my scientific mind wasn't like trying to analyze the experience. Instead, it was more my heart saying, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. It was like, literally, I felt this wonderful joy and peace radiating from the heart. And I was going, wow, you know, what on earth is this? And so that was the um, beginning of the experience. And then I realized that on my way home, as I was now flying back to Virginia, where I was now teaching, um, I was looking at the cover of his book, which is called Play of Consciousness. And he had his photo was on the cover. And I kept looking at the cover saying, who are you? And what have you given me? Mm. I mean, I was totally perplexed as a materialist scientist having had this experience. And I think what was amazing to me is that the very next morning, I woke up at 5 a.m., which is not typically usual for me. And I got up and I meditated. And I have continued to meditate every day, pretty much the rest of my life, unless there's an early morning plane trip or something mm -hmm. like that. But basically, because I knew that that was my way of tapping back in to that place of serenity and peace and joy that was in my heart. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was like the turning point that made me sort of wake up in a certain sense to the fact that there's much more to life than my neuroscientist understanding had given me before. And I should also say what happened is it was like my five senses were the only things that I was perceiving the world through up until that point. And my five senses told me that all the things that we think about the world, that it's separate from us, that it's material, and that's all it is. And something happened in that meditation program where I was awakened to a new experience that was broader and a feeling of connection with other people and a feeling of energy centers in my own body that I'd never felt before. Hmm. Did you find yourself after the experience, um, looking back onto your neuro neuroscience training and trying to explain um, through chemical explanations and physical explanations why you experienced that? Well, yes, yes and no. So here was the interesting thing that I then discovered after that point. I began to have a sense in my life of two different parts of me having discussions with each other and often not like sweet discussions either, but it was like my materialist half was talking to my now more spiritual energetically awakened side and saying, you this is impossible. This can't be things like that. And when I would go to a conference with my um, materialist scientific colleagues um, and I would begin to hear all of their talks about the brain and things like that, I would say, Oh, you know, maybe that really was just a figment of my imagination. And then my heart would say, wait a minute, you know, this was more real than real for you. And you have to like find a way of being curious to figure out how the two worlds could actually come together. And so I think what happened to me is that my scientific side would actually rebel. And I, I do recall that for probably the first 10 years or more that I was now getting up every morning and meditating, but then going into the university to do my research on rehabilitation, I would lead two separate lives. I would meditate in the morning, I would come into the university, and then I would basically talk materialist neuroscientist science all day long. And then I would go to a meditation program in the evening, talking to my meditation friends, and I would switch back into that mode of heart-based, more feeling of unity awareness. And so that bothered me after about 10 years. And that I think I mentioned in my book that it was hard on my husband because my husband loved alternative medicine. He loved, um, for example, things like Reiki and acupuncture. And he would talk at a neuroscience gathering at my home about some of these topics. And I would give him a kick under the table to get him to stop because I was so worried that my materialist friends would actually lose their feeling of credibility about my own research yeah. if they knew yeah. that I was associated with any of this. So you see, there's this very interesting barrier that we have in our society between people really trying to integrate that. 
So finally, I said after, again, 10 or more years, I have to start integrating this in my life and I have to begin to do research in meditation in my laboratory to begin to understand it, to say, okay, can there be a way of broadening my worldview to include the two? And that's when I began doing research with um, some of my graduate students on things like Tai Chi and on meditation and trying to understand if we can see changes in the brain associated with meditation that might help us explain this different sense of awareness that we have. Mm. I'm sure that many would say that um, there is a huge contradiction between what we currently understand about the brain and these experiences that um, are often given a more esoteric explanation. Do you, do you find that that's the case, that there is that um, con uh, contradiction? Well, there is. And I think that what's interesting is when I talk to my neuroscience colleagues that are still materialists, basically what they say is that, look, we know because our materialist worldview is right, that anyone that says that things, for example, like near-death experiences happen where your heart is stopped, your EEG is flatlined, and people are perceiving events around them, um, have to be false. They must have been having a hallucination or something like that, simply because it doesn't fit into our current worldview. But there are others like myself that are saying, is it perhaps that our worldview isn't quite correct and it needs to be expanded a little bit to include perhaps consciousness as being fundamental? And so I've again begun to do my own research and reading the research of other colleagues now in this area. I've actually written a recent paper that is called The Neural Correlates of Mystical Experiences. And you can, I can even send it to you, but it's in the Journal of Near-Death Studies. And the understanding there from my own research and that of others is that actually when we are normally awake in our usual mode of interacting with the world, there is a particular network of our brain, which is a, an attentional filtering network that keeps us from actually perceiving more than we absolutely need to perceive to get along well in this world. And scientists have talked about these net attentional filters for years, I think Broadbent was the first man in about 1950s that actually proposed that. So it's not as if it's an esoteric idea, but what the esoteric part of it is, or the part that's not necessarily accepted by many neuroscientists, is that what these are doing is actually keeping us from experiencing this broader consciousness that people who have near-death experiences experience, people who have out-of-body experiences experience, people in meditation. So I think that is the new... Um, perhaps lens on this network. And one part of this network is called the default mode network. And this was probably begun to be discovered maybe about 20 or more years ago. And is also called the mind wandering network. And I love that term, the mind wandering network, because it's literally our default mode when we're sitting around and just letting that narrative move through our mind about how we're relating to the world, all the thoughts about what went wrong yesterday and how we're gonna fix it today and stuff like that. And so their point is that when we record from the default mode network, in the brain in like functional magnetic resonance imaging, et cetera, um, it's basically active most of the time. But interestingly, when a person meditates, the default mode network begins to be shut down. It gets quieter. And of course, that's probably because part of the point of meditation is to quiet the chatter of the mind. So as we quiet the chatter of the mind, we turn off this particular part of the brain and therefore we're now able to reduce one of the filters that's keeping us from having this broader awareness. And so my understanding is that is why probably people who meditate have more mystical experiences like I did in that first meditation. And in fact, a man named Judson Brewer, who's at Yale University, has actually done research on this in his laboratory, looking at absolute expert meditators versus people who are just new to meditation, putting them in the fMRI machine, and then recording from their brain centers, including the default mode network, and showing that in fact, in meditators, the default mode network goes way, way down in its activation levels. And in the brand new people to meditation, the control subjects, it doesn't. So that was one interesting point for me. And then, I began reading work also by Barrett and Griffiths who are at Johns Hopkins University doing work with people who are given psilocybin when they yes. have terminal cancer. Yeah. And so once again, here is somebody that you're trying to lessen their anxiety about their impending death and they find that one dose of psilocybin begins to help. But the question is, 
How is it helping? Mm -hmm. And once again, when they go ahead and do these functional magnetic resonance imaging scans of somebody that is now on psilocybin, they find exactly the same thing. The exact same parts of this default mode network begin to be turned off. And what I like most about what Barrett and Griffiths have found is that there is a direct correlation between the amount of deactivation of the default mode network and the amount of mystical experience that these people have. Yeah. So there's sort of like a second bit of evidence that this makes sense mm. to me, that it's actually a quieting of the brain that's allowing these filters to then be removed and have us experience more. And then you have near-death experiences. And in near-death experiences, well, the default mode network is absolutely turned off because mm -hmm. the entire brain is turned off. And once again, when they, for example, have the experience of leaving their body in the operating room, watching the resuscitation team from above try to resuscitate them, my own hypothesis would be that, again, not only is the default mode network turned off, but a lot of other filters in the brain have turned off so that now they are experiencing consciously di consciousness directly without a brain. Mm -hmm. And that's, in fact, why they are actually seeing their body from above rather than from, from inside. So those three different um, lenses, in a certain sense, meditation, near-death experiences, psilocybin, seem to me to all be pointing to the fact that consciousness is fundamental. And the more that we can get rid of these filters that are in our brain that are keeping us from this wider awareness, the more we have a chance of actually experiencing consciousness in a more unmediated way, I would say. Mm. Do you think that that kind of research um, that correlates lessened brain activity to more um, heightened levels of experience could also be implemented into subjects such as um, paradoxical lucidity, terminal lucidity? You know, I do. And I'm, I, I'm intrigued by terminal lucidity. And um, I think you may be aware that Alexander Batiani, who is from uh, Vienna, University of Vienna, has done some initial research on terminal lucidity and um, basically doing a large survey of doctors and nurses, other medical professionals in the European area. And what his preliminary studies have shown um, from their responses to his questionnaire is that something like, first of all, 10% of people with dementia or Alzheimer's or other things like um, maybe a stroke that's caused them to be in a coma, basically have this terminal lucidity. And he's carefully looked at the, like, the numbers of minutes or hours before death that this typically happens in somebody that has dementia, for example. And I think it's a, usually within about the, the last two hours, but it could be longer up to a day or more before death, that suddenly they come out of their totally chaotic brain function from, due to the Alzheimer's or the dementia or the stroke into a place of, as we call it, lucidity, terminal lucidity, where they basically now are lucid. And in one case, one of the stories from his um, particular article was that one grandmother basically who was in a nursing home and was not really coherent at all, didn't relate to people, actually calls up her daughter on the phone and says in this beautiful way, goodbye to her daughter, talks to the grandchildren on the phone as well. And the next day she dies. And you're going, how can that be? It's like, how can a brain, when you look at an Alzheimer's brain, it really looks diseased. It is diseased. How can that happen? And I loved the um, hypothesis, we might call it, that the um, perhaps the way that Bajani tried to explain it metaphorically, he said, it's a little bit like if you are a person that has a computer that's faulty and you're trying to type on your computer and it doesn't um, want to put the keys out, the, the notes out from the keys because it has a virus. And finally, you give up using the computer because you just can't communicate with the computer. And he said, that's a little bit like how the person with Alzheimer's feels as their brain is beginning to get the disease. And finally they give up, they can't communicate anymore, but it doesn't mean that their spirit is not still intact. It just can't communicate anymore. And the way he describes it metaphorically is it's a little bit like the sun that is eclipsed by the moon. And what happens is when the brain finally begins to um, be separated from the spirit as the person begins to get ready to die, it's as if that eclipse of the brain, of, of the soul, the spirit by the brain begins to be uneclipsed. And for a while, the person is back there able to communicate with you before they completely separate and go their way. And I, I think what's wonderful about this newer understanding is that it changes the way we interact with people with Alzheimer's or stroke that have a coma or any of these other things where 
I think one healthcare worker mentioned something like, in the past, she had treated this person almost like human vegetables, meaning she didn't think that there was anybody there. And she said, now I understand, she used the term, they're nurslings of immortality. Their spirit is there, but we just can't interact with it. So we suddenly treat them as the sacred beings that they are with lots of love because they can experience that at some level, even though they can't let us know. And I should mention that a doctor, Bettina Payton, who had a near-death experience and who I, I talk about her experience in my book, said something interesting when she went into hospice care after her near-death experience because she wanted to help people at the end of life. She was no longer afraid of death. And she said, when I looked into those people's eyes that had dementia, for example, I could see their spirit there. And often tears would come to their eyes when we were communing without words, the two of us. And I thought, that's what we need to have in our healthcare settings, people to understand that mm -hmm. so that we honor the spirit that's still inside of that human body. Yes, absolutely. And from, from a neuroscientific perspective, do you know of any um, kind of explanation, physical explanation that could be put forward for terminal lucidity? And I've, I've had a couple of people that have suggested things like pH levels and spontaneous regeneration of brain matter and, and um, degeneration of tumors and things like that. Yeah, and I think that those could be explanations, but I, I don't think when we do the research that they, it will be very clear because in fact, I think an, another way of looking at it, same with near-death experiences, that there's a sudden like activation of the neurons as they're get ready, getting ready to die. And so this this is just part of death, they say, that neurons begin very become very active and then they're gone. But I think that when you look at the data, especially for example, I think Bruce Grayson talks about this with near-death experiences. Most near-death experiences don't have this um, final like explosion of neural activity before someone dies. In, in the near-death experience, the neurons have already shut off. Mm. So I, I don't see how that could be an explanation necessarily. Now, mm. um, it's gonna be hard to do experiments to really explain that sort of thing um, if you want to go into some a, a person with terminal lucidity, but how the tumor would suddenly get better and then the person would die doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. It's like the tumor is actually killing the person. Yes, so, yes. Um, I mean, in terms of the tumor explanation, the one I heard was um, positing that maybe there was some sort of growth in the brain and as the brain was degenerating, the tumor was degenerating as well. And so as the tumor had degenerated enough, it allowed enough of more normal connection to come through. Did seem a little bit far-fetched, but it was an explanation that was put through. Yeah, and I mean, and I, if I were a materialist still as a neuroscientist, I would be trying to give any explanation possible to try to explain it as well. So I certainly take those. And I think what, if we had the attitude in science that I would love to see in the future, it would be go ahead and put all of the hypotheses on the table that could explain something like terminal lucidity from a materialist perspective and ones that might explain it from a consciousness being fundamental perspective and then have a team of people that are willing to be curious about both sides, try to do experiments or create experiments that could actually differentiate between those things mm -hmm. and give a fair amount of um, government dollars in neuroscience research to really exploring that sort of thing in an open way. And I think that that's the only way we're going to find the solution. And right now that doesn't happen because our neuroscientist perspective that is materialist is so strong that no one wants to give money to research that would actually explore the relative possibility of one or the others of those hypotheses being true. So why do you think that given the evidence that we have with uh, veridical near-death experiences and terminal lucidity and out-of-body various things, why do you think it is then that that materialistic paradigm is still so solid that none of these are taken seriously? Well, and I will speak partly from my own experience. Until I had that meditation experience, I'd only had an experience of the world through my five senses. And that's all I believe was real because that's all I'd experienced as real. And I think, and, and then of course you think that people that believe more than that are doing it because they're weak-minded. Oh, well, you know, they're afraid of death. And so therefore as a way of dealing with your fear of death, you're gonna create something that's just a fantasy. It's just, you know, a fairy tale. So. I see that until a person has that experience, it's very hard to accept that this could be true when you're especially brought up with a worldview that is materialist. Mm -hmm. I have noted that when you look at history, there was a point in history when um, 
consciousness being fundamental was not denigrated in the way it is today. But still, if you go back to, for example, the Greeks 2000 plus years ago, there were the materialists in Greek philosophy, and there were the people like, for example, Socrates, that believed that consciousness was fundamental. And they were both, in a certain sense, warring with each other, war isn't exactly the world, but discussing with each other strongly whose view was right. And so this has been going on forever. And I... I mean, the whole Plato's allegory of a cave, which Socrates, this wonderful dialogue with Socrates, where Socrates is really talking about somebody that has a spiritual awakening coming out of this cave of shadows, which would be a materialist reality, coming into the sun, not being able to even see clearly in the beginning because the sun is too bright for their eyes, but Mm. then adjusts and sees a whole new world out there, and then tries to go back into the cave to explain that to his fellow prisoners in the cave. And they try to, I mean, the way I think, Socrates explains it is that wouldn't they perhaps want to even like kill this man because he he's acting insane saying things to them so I realized that throughout our history as humanity we have had this difficulty inside of our beings trying to understand which is true or could both be true in their own ways in a broader understanding of reality so moving on slightly um it seems that a lot of people will make the assertion that although we can't show how the brain produces consciousness, we know enough about how the brain works now to tell that it certainly does in some way, and that um, we just need to do more effective, effectively more science to discover that mechanism, and that it will be found eventually. What do you think to that opinion? Well, I mean, I think it's rather humorous in some ways because, of course, I was one of those people for many years, and. Um, I remember going to the Science of Consciousness conferences, um, in, which were in Tucson, Arizona, which uh, were a lot of scientists interested in consciousness, but many materialists, and then some people that were also post-materialist, I would call them, would have discussions about that. And um, Christoph Koch was one of those people who um, definitely believed that we would discover eventually the material basis of consciousness. And he was interacting with um, uh, Crick, um, Francis Crick, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, and they would—it was what we call promissory materialism—that you know, yes. if we just yeah. go a little further, we will find that set of neurons that actually does this. And finally, Christoph Koch actually changed his mind, and he talks in his own book about that moment when he did change his mind, when some particular scientist questioned whether he ever really would find that answer, or is it just, in a certain sense, the wishful thinking of neuroscientists mm-hmm. because they can't leave their um, particular materialist mode. And when he wrote his book, he said something about how he actually believed now that in fact consciousness could permeate the entire universe and uh, has now begun to shift his research to look at a slightly different, less materialist or more inclusive perspective, I would say, in trying to understand consciousness. Hmm. So what do you think then um, would be, how would you describe the difference between um evidence showing that the brain produces consciousness versus it being correlational mm-hmm. well i mean I think, right i think you're, you're that's the the very point that i think most people make that go against the materialist perspective is that of course you're going to find correlations and i think they often use the example of radios and radio transmitters of brain waves excuse me of radio waves which you've heard or tv um, transmitters receivers and i'm um, just because there's a correlation between for example what's going on in terms of the output of your radio or your tv and what signals were coming in doesn't mean that the tv created the signals in fact it's the other way around the tv is the receiver and i think that's the point that people make about the brain that of course you're going to find correlations and it's fun to look at the correlations i mean as a neuroscientist i love to do that it's like oh this part of the brain is responsible for perhaps my memory of certain events and this part is responsible for speech etc well responsible simply means that yes that is when i cut out that part of the brain my speech is gone but it doesn't mean that there wasn't a consciousness that was also helping create the thoughts that would then create the speech Mm. and those activities in the brain. So I think that until we find a way of really looking at causation and not just correlation, um, I don't think we'll be able to answer answer that question clearly one way or the other. Mm. But but I guess my point here is that if you really take near-death experiences seriously, and again, the 
papers that have been written by people like Pin Van Lommel, an MD in the Netherlands, Bruce Grayson, Sam Parnia. These are people that are very, very good, careful researchers. They have done studies where they take, for example, every single person that has had cardiac arrest in a network of hospitals, bring them into the study. Um, they're looking at their EEGs, their chemicals in the brain. If they are revived so that they don't die, they then basically interview them afterwards and they carefully then analyze all their data and if they find out these experiences that can be verified that the person is aware of things happening underneath them um, as they are looking down on the resuscitation team and they can see that the brain was flatlined i don't see how an honest curious neuroscientist could throw those data away mm. and simply say it can't be true i still believe that the brain is the only thing that actually creates consciousness it's like there's something that doesn't seem responsible about somebody assuming that bruce grayson sam parnia these other um great great um mds and neuroscientists are like so weak-minded they would believe in something that wasn't true it's just an odd thing that we would um, actually surmise. Yes. I mean, the most um, most common criticism I hear from the likes of Dr. Grayson and, and, and Dr. Van Lommel is that they're practicing pseudoscience and mm -hmm. that they must be, they must have some kind of bias or, or faulty experiments, regardless of the fact that, you know, these are experiences that are verifiable and have been verified. There must be a problem with the data or they must be remembering incorrectly or they must have been fooled. Um, now, I've spoken with Dr. Grayson um, myself and he's certainly by no means a pseudoscientist. You can tell just by talking to the guy that he is, he is very open and he is very critical. And you can see just by the papers that he's written on both sides of the argument that he is after the truth. Yep. So I, I wonder why it is that um, I can only imagine a lot of these critics haven't actually read in detail the papers that these people have published but i wonder why they come to these conclusions well so first of all i would say that many of the people that criticize have not read the papers and will not read the papers because they know in advance whatever knowing in advance means that that, that it goes against the theory of material reality and therefore it cannot be true so they are so stuck in their theory that they're not willing to look at data that might be what they would call anomalous data. They just say it's anomalous, it can't be true, it's artifactual, and so why should we bother looking at it? We know it can't be true. And to me, that is anti-science. Mm -hmm. And when they do look at the papers, they'll say, well, you know, I'm sure that in fact, you, you weren't really measuring the blood levels correctly for oxygen, or you weren't really weren't looking at the neurons, or I mean, what I have heard from neuroscience, in fact, friends of mine who don't believe this as well, I know that the, the EEG measures the cortical activity, Well, someplace deep in the brain, yes. there was some activity yes. that allowed that person to have these experiences, and you're going, wait a minute. Let's talk this through carefully. We know that your only perception of reality, true conscious perception happens in your cortex, visual cortex, auditory cortex, somatosensory cortex. That's where your experiences happen. When somebody is basically pretty much brain dead, that's because now it's only the brainstem that's left active and they don't have those abilities. So um, it's hard then to have somebody say, well, I know there was some place in the brain that they weren't getting to that was causing all of this. It's like, and, and, and it was also causing them to be able to perceive from above their body and see everything happening in the room. It's like, please, you know, explain to me how your material perspective could actually allow that to happen. And, and then I think, I mean, typically when that happens to me, the person just walks away because they, we can no longer communicate because I'm going against their, material theory of the world. And yes. I, yeah, so it, what can I say? I think that to me, what, what I really believe now, especially after all of these years, being half on one side of the fence and then half on the other side of the fence is that we are raised in neuroscience as, as students, undergrads and graduate students, and then as young professors in a religion of science. And we are told what our beliefs are, just like it would be in any other religion. These are the beliefs, these are the truths, and we're given mm -hmm. evidence for it. And, and here are all of our experiments that have been done to show that the brain is producing consciousness. And in my book, Infinite Awareness, I talk about that. I have a whole chapter on what I call the bottom-up perspective, because there's a lot of evidence that seems reasonable that yeah, the brain produces absolutely. consciousness. 
So I, that, that's why it was like I was myself saying, well, excuse me, look at all this evidence. I mean, you have a stroke and that part of the brain that has a stroke that's destroyed, suddenly that part of the body can't move anymore. Yeah. So isn't it obvious? But as you said, that's correlational. And that's not all the evidence. So I think that because we're raised in this religious tradition, that's one thing. And just like in a religion, like the Catholic Church in, say, the 1600s, if you go against the dogma of the church, you will be considered a heretic. And you will either be abolished, basically pushed outside of the group, the herd in effect, or you could be killed. And you know that. And so even if you believe it, are you going to say that out loud? Because you know that that could, um, in, in the case of being a Catholic, that could ruin your life in society and or take away your life. And so now we take it into modern neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I'm a neuroscientist. I have these questions, but I know that if I publish a paper in this area, I could be ostracized because now I will be yes. considered weak-minded. You'd be risking your career. Risk your career. And mm. there's evidence that a lot of people that start out as new young professors that start in the areas doing research on meditation or other things that are somewhat like anomalous um, psi experiences, they don't get tenure. You have to be, I mean, the way I'm doing my research now is I got tenure in rehabilitation medicine, and then I began doing my research. Mm -hmm. And I kept my research in rehabilitation medicine going so that people would say, hey, still credible, okay, this is fine. But then I added in the other research that was something that I wanted to do because I really was curious about what is the truth? How do we put all this into, into one particular way of looking at the world? Yes, and it seems a shame because the questions that surround this, you know, the nature of the human being and what happens after we die is, to me, the most important question humanity has ever raised or will ever raise. Exactly. And so it seems unusual that that isn't more supported. Absolutely. When I think the other thing that we're hearing, sort of this cry of anguish in a certain sense from people that are spiritually oriented, is that our materialist perspective is making us treat the world in a very non-sacred way by using up all the resources, by allowing pollution, because we say, well, when our generation dies, it doesn't matter, we're gone. So yeah. why shouldn't we use up all the resources? Who cares about pollution? And, and even the fact that we aren't considering our future generations and our children is very, very sad. But the, just that idea that if we saw our unity with others in the world, with the all of nature on our planet, um, with the cosmos, wouldn't we have a very different way of living and being that would be much more harmonious and full of compassion. All those things that we say are the best qualities of humanity. Yes, and I would agree with the point of view from the um, materialists that say, well, if this is true and it's all for nothing, then why shouldn't we take advantage? You know, don't, don't worry about what happens to the future generations because they're going to die, and so will their children and their children, and so will the whole universe. And those that say, well, I mean, the fact that there is no afterlife or no continuation of consciousness adds value to life because you live it for the moment. I'd say, well, no, because ultimately it's all for nothing. Everything yeah. and every achievement you've ever made or your children will ever make from the opportunities you give them will ultimately end in permanent unconsciousness and no one will ever remember anything. So to me, that doesn't wash. That doesn't mean it's more purposeful. And I don't, I don't see the sense in it. No. And in fact, I think a lot of people that have that materialist understanding commit suicide because they're, it's such a, a, an awful way of understanding what life is about when you think that. And finally, you just say, well, why should I live at all? And then, yeah. then you see, and, and we have a lot of suicides these days in young people, which is a little bit, it's very sad. Mm. Mm. And I think when we look at the evidence, as you mentioned earlier, for, as you say, there is very, very reasonable evidence to suggest that the brain creates consciousness. Mm -hmm. And to me, though, I see this exactly the same evidence as being completely concurrent with the idea that the brain acts as a filter. <laughs> and in fact, I think there is more evidence to suggest that because the production theory doesn't account for anomalous experience. Absolutely. And I mean, when... I totally agree with you. Yes. Right. <laughs> but of course, you have to understand that the materialist says, I'm not going to go there because that can't be true. So they cut themselves off from looking at experiments that you're talking about because it doesn't fit in with their theory. Mm. So I, yes, I totally agree with you. And I, I wish somehow that we had a more of an open forum um, with scientists on both sides where people were truly curious and willing to listen to the other side without making all of those assumptions about 
this has to be um, defective science, or um, you know, this is just your imagination, et cetera. Um, or you believe in this already, and so you're looking at your data um, through your own filters that aren't really um, good filters. Yes, so. yes, absolutely. And I mean, there have been materialistic suggestions that have been put forward for these, especially near-death experiences. Um, the most common one is anoxia, followed by DMT, dimethyltryptamine yep. production, which is theorized but not, not evidenced yet. Um, you, you get reference to pilots who come out of their body with extreme g-force and these are all and um, what's the other one the temporal parietal junction um mm -hmm. susan blackmore and uh yeah. olaf blunk mm -hmm. and these are all put forward as if we know that this must be the case and yet to me none of them really fulfill the data but but they're they're that plausible explanation with, without having to really look at the data carefully. You simply that's your way of pushing the experiments aside and that understanding aside. And I, that's I think what's interesting is when we often have on a um, for example national news show somebody that's had a near death experience or maybe these cases suggestive of reincarnation of a child. Yes. They, the news station tries to have both sides presented. And so they have the person telling the story of the near-death experience, and then they have the skeptic. But if what's so interesting is that most of the time, the skeptics haven't even looked at the article or the data. And all they do is spout their reasons why it can't be true without even taking the curiosity to look. Yes. And um, I think that I have a number of um, scientific friends. I think um, Stefan Schwartz is an example of one of those people who has been in debates with some of these people that are on the other side. And um, in one case, I think it was Stefan Schwartz that said the person that was on the other side um, basically um, was saying, well, you know, of course this isn't true. And, and Stefan Schwartz said something like, well, I'm sure that you're saying that because you've carefully read all of our articles. So would you please give me all of the examples of why this isn't true? And the guy gets red in the face and, and he marches off the stage because of course he hasn't read a thing. He said, I wouldn't bother reading that data, it can't be true. And so it's like, well, okay then, but that just shows that particular materialist scientist bias. Yes, indeed. And often these are the folks, um, especially the online skeptics who proclaim that the proponents of these things are extremely lacking in critical thinking and um, and scientific mindset, whereas they, they very seldom turn the mirror back to themselves and really examine their own principles and their own beliefs and yeah. ever question i mean you know, this, the whole idea of being skeptical is to be skeptical mainly of one's own opinion as opposed to any other opinion that comes up i mean how many people are skeptical to someone that agrees with them yeah yeah very rarely but, I find. yeah and you you raise an interesting point that when i was, was um, trained as a young neuroscientist we talked about the scientific method and the scientific method required that you have two alternative hypotheses. And these two alternative hypotheses were ones that you were you were willing to go either way, depending on the, how the research um, data actually presented the, the outcome. And I think what happens today is that we, we want one hypothesis to be true and we don't want the other hypothesis to be true. So we aren't necessarily honest neuroscientists when we present an experiment like that. We really need to have, okay, Consciousness fundamental is one, and the other is consciousness is produced by the brain. And I equally um, want to look at which one is valid. And I'm going to test that until I really have a good answer. But I'm going to keep on working on that until that yes, time. Comes. Yes. What would you say to those that are interested in this field that are always finding themselves disheartened or shot down by people that say um, it's impossible? Well, you know. I should say that I'm the president now of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences. And I co-organized this organization with Gary Schwartz who's at the University of Arizona. Yes. And we have a number of colleagues that um, are talking about that sort of thing that you're talking about. How do we um, talk to the people that are disheartened? And for me, I'm meeting actually now young scientists who want to go into this area, but are wondering how they can do that and actually have a, a career that will be successful. And one of the things that we are trying to do is find money for an institute, for example, that would cross many universities where we would have funding for research in this field. Because one of the interesting things is that when you have money to support the research, then you will find that graduate students will have a way of supporting themselves or young scientists will have a way of supporting themselves. And so that also gives credibility um, when you have something housed at, like for example, a major university. So we're hoping that we can find a way of actually 
creating an institute or a center housed at one university, but networking across many universities and find a donor that would be willing to offer um, or, and or donors offer money to support research and that type of a, a multi-campus um, group. Uh, and maybe that will begin to help as we get more and more research data. And also the more scientists that are willing to say, okay, I'm gonna do that research, I'm getting paid for it, and put out really good research may allow the credibility level to get to the point that more scientists other than those that are now doing the research are beginning to accept it. I think that you need to have scientists that are strong scientists go ahead and produce the research and then others are willing to talk to them because they say, oh yeah, okay, I, I believe you're credible. In fact, I should say, one interesting thing that I wasn't aware of when I wrote my book, Infinite Awareness, I thought this is one more book. I, I didn't know how it would be accepted, but because I am a neuroscientist with amazing credibility from my past rehabilitation research, people are more willing to listen to me. And I was shocked, I was shocked at that because it's like, I haven't been doing sci research, like for example, Bruce Grayson and others, all of my career, I've started it in the last like 10 years, but that credibility as I go into that research allows people to be willing to listen. Yes. And of course I'm honored that that's the case. And I, then I'm very happy to share what I found. Perfect. And I'd say one last question on the other end of the scale, what would you say to those who would say that there is no scientific data of reasonable evidence to support anything other than the brain produces consciousness or any evidence there is is either anecdotal or does not meet scientific standards and i think what i would say for them is i would ask them to be curious and i would say um just like we're starting an institute to look at whether consciousness is primary That's, that's, that's another neuroscientist who's calling <laughs> me. She had my co-author on, in fact, the neural correlates paper. Um, what I would say to them is that they need to, in fact, maybe even become part of the same organization looking at is consciousness primary and be willing to be part of these experiments. One of the things I think that Stefan Schwartz has said about his experiments is he invites the skeptics to look at his experimental paradigm in advance and to say, what do we need to do to actually show that this um, is not true? I want your input on how to design the experiment so that you would be happy with the outcome no matter what it is. And then the skeptics are on board when he does the experiment and then they are more willing to accept whatever the results are. Yes. So that would be my, my request to those skeptics. Yeah. I, I would wonder though, if, if it's left um, completely to skeptics to devise these kind of things um would we find something similar re-emerging like the randy challenge was well see and i would they, i that's where i wouldn't leave it to the skeptics that they would be working with the people that are doing um the experiments um about the primacy of consciousness and and so i think what i'm trying to say is that um they if they're honest they should be able to come up with an experiment that they would be happy with whatever the outcome was. So I'm hoping we wouldn't have that sort of thing happen. It would literally be that they would have to be cooperating, yes. trying to find the truth. And I often ask about the Randy challenge to people because it's it's often cited by everybody as the definitive debunker, debunking service because no one's ever claimed it. I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, and, and you know, I didn't even know about that in the beginning being just a neuroscientist in my own laboratory, but as I've talked to some of my fellow um, researchers now, I mean, including Bruce, Grace, Bruce Grayson and others, you can see that, in fact, he, he, as you said, he was really just a debunker and he wasn't going to let anybody else's research or opinions or results change his opinions. And I think that um, many of my colleagues that I've interacted with that have talked about that were really saddened because I think in the beginning they thought maybe he was what do I want to, I, honest or authentic about his opinions mm -hmm. and concerns? And then they found that, no, he really wasn't at all. He just was a debunker. Okay, brilliant. Well, I appreciate your time coming on. I agree that we certainly need some sort of forum for honest skeptics and honest, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to set something up like that. I mean, I've got um, three calls coming up with a bunch of researchers and I've invited a bunch of skeptics, but they haven't usually responded. So I'd like to see something like that set up one day because it's, honest discussion is really necessary.
Right, yeah. And I, I mean, I would also appreciate people like yourself joining, for example, the AAPS, because I think that it, what we want is a, a lively discussion about how we can move forward. And sometimes yeah. it takes people that are young like yourself to do that. So, mm. brilliant. Yes. Well, thank you very much. So, tell me now what you're doing with all of your data that you're gathering from talking with us. Mainly, I'm just um, gathering it for my own research. I mean, I started the research because I've had, still do have severe anxiety and depression related to mortality and health mainly, which started me kind of looking at this stuff when I was 12. Yeah. Um, which is a shame, but there it is. Um, and mainly it's just for my own research, but I do you know, provide all the discussions I have freely online for anyone else that's interested. Yeah. And it's mainly, I mean, I've, some of the people I've met, you know, Dr. Jan Holden now I consider a, a good friend of mine. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Bruce Grayson is, is amazing. And just the opportunity to really speak personally with, with the researchers themselves rather than relying on third party citations and, and articles about them, it's, you know, invaluable. Mm -hmm. So it's mainly just a sharing of information for those that are interested. Yeah, I think, and you raise an interesting point. When I was a kid, I remember the day that I discovered that I wasn't going to live forever. And I remember being so angry at God, whoever God was as a little kid, that he would bring me into a paradise and then end it at some point. I didn't yes. know when. And yeah. I was like so, so angry. And I realized almost every day of my life early on, I thought about death. And it was interesting that perhaps that was one of the um, things that was uh, um, pushing me toward um, this new um, understanding. It's like, wait a minute, how can that really be? What, that's the most rotten trick to play on anybody mm. unless you believe that there's much more than life and you're just moving across the veil and then coming back again if you want. I mean, but it becomes then much more of a play of consciousness rather than something that is um, a sort of a mean trick played by an angry god or something yes so. exactly although those that would go against would say that it doesn't really matter what you want or what you don't want it's what what is that's yeah, important exactly. yeah well, so that's why the data are important so. exactly exactly okay brilliant thanks doctor for coming on is there anything you'd like to promote also while we're here I mean, basically, the AAPS, I think, is an organization that we'd love to have more young people involved in and more scientists and non-scientists interested in this sort of thing to be involved in, just to make that conversation become more lively and um, broadened. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Seeking Eye Life Exploration podcast. If you did and would like to continue following my research, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel, and following the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also join our Facebook discussion group. You can find the link to this and other Seeking Eye online profiles at seeking-eye.com. Thank you.